you need these great stories, but you also need people who are willing to pay to go see those stories on screen. And that creates this positive flywheel where the more people are going out, the box office numbers are better and more of these stories are greenlit. I think before I spent the year in Taiwan, um, I didn't really think about my identity that much. And then I was there and it almost like the pendulum swung the other way where I, I was completely immersed in it. And, and you know, most of the people I was around looked like me and we were the majority. And so then when I came back, I, I tried to find something in the middle. And throughout college, uh, we had the same thought of like, we're continuing to not see Asian representation in these magazines, not just on the editorial side, but even in the advertisements. We recently helped launch an initiative called All of Us. It was formerly called All Americans. Uh, and this was meant to leverage our unique ventures to support other marginalized communities. If you are your authentic self and you put that out into the world, um, other people who feel that way will come and find you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Agnana podcast. I'm your host, Amy Chan. I also produce and edit this podcast. For this episode, I'm thrilled to have Maggie Shu with us. Maggie's currently working on enterprise blockchain service at Amazon Web Services, um, and she's also the co-founder of Gold House as well as Mochi Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Maggie. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your family. I want to get to know you a little bit better. I want the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. I know you grew up on the East Coast in the U.S. Um, can you tell me about your parents, your siblings? Sure. So I grew up in Massachusetts, right outside Boston. Uh, my parents came over from Taiwan in the late 70s and um, had my older brother and then me um, spent most of my childhood on the East Coast. Did your parents come for school? Did they just immigrate here? They did. Um, they were part of what I think was called the academic brain drain uh, from Taiwan. And so they came over for graduate school, went to school in Texas, and then um, went to school in Michigan. Um, in our pre-interview, you mentioned that your dad hosted actually this Chinese school in the basement of a local church and your brother just did not like going. So you had to be the one to sort of go to this. Um, did you ever ask your dad why he took on that task? Like it's such a big job, I think, outside of your regular job. It's funny. I had never even thought of it until we spoke during the pre-interview. And so after we connected, um, I reached back out to him and I asked him and, and he said, you know, it, it kind of made sense. He said that he was looking to build a community um, with um, other immigrants and also keep us, you know, as the next generation connected with our culture and our heritage. Um, and then he also said that he was, you know, hoping we would learn Mandarin Chinese because, you know, so many people in the world um, speak it. But, you know, I, I kind of told him, well, unfortunately, I didn't get that last part. I didn't get the memo and uh, my Chinese is still still quite poor. But we ended up doing these like every year we would do um a dance, a choreographed dance. So um, I now know how to dance, <laughs> which is probably an unintended consequence. So was he your teacher? Or was he just like sort of the principal of that Chinese school? No, him him and a, a group of his friends, I believe, got together and, and they formed it. And then um, I think they rotated, um, they rotated teachers. Um, and I remember we would have, you know, we would have class for a bit and then there'd be social time and then the adults would get to hang out and, and socialize. And um, it was really fun. Yeah, we had something similar too. My aunt was actually one of like the parent teachers of like the Chinese school that I went to. And it was so competitive that like every Taiwanese Canadian family wanted to go to that Chinese school. So in the summer times, they would actually line up outside. Oh my and, gosh. Like, they would, yeah, they would bring their folding chairs and like it was so competitive and you had to live in the area and people would borrow people's addresses just to like go to that Chinese school. <laughs> oh, wow. And it was like a whole ecosystem of like after that you would be you would have like Chinese dance, you would have Chinese kung fu, um, like painting, and then even like 
you know, doing Chinese art and stuff. It was an entire ecosystem. And I just, I don't know how our parents and our aunties and uncles did it, but I think they did a pretty good job. So did you have any good memories from it or was it kind of like torture for you to go? Because for me, it was great. But for my siblings, it was torture. <laughs> I mean, I think yours sounded a lot more serious and intense maybe than <laughs> ours. So I remember, I mean, honestly, we didn't pay much attention during the, the educational part. And it was it was great because I, I have so many you know friends from there. And so it was our opportunity to see each other every week and, and catch up. Yeah. Um, so I read in an interview that you saw your life as sort of this clear path that's laid out by your parents. And I think very similarly, a lot of Asian Americans feel the same way, you know, get good grades, get into a really good school, get a stable job and a respectable job. Um, tell me about this realization. And was there a dream job that you had as a child that seems kind of wacky out of this world, but you wish you kind of followed up on? Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't, I guess it wasn't a realization. It was almost just what was told to me, you know, even from, I remember in elementary school, it was like, these are the colleges that are good colleges. And, and that's going to be your goal for the next several years is to get into one of those. And then, you know, I, I did that. And then it was like, okay, well then there's something else right now. You need to get a good job. And I was like, wait, I just did. Okay. Now I have to get a new job. And, and so I think I was, you know, I kind of followed that path. It, it's funny. Like I actually wanted to be an architect when I was, when I was younger. Um, and I had all these like architecture books. Um, and then I remember I took, I started taking an architecture class freshman year of high school. And I think I ended up having to drop it because it conflicted with like another class and it might've been orchestra or math or so. It was just, there was some, and, and I actually haven't thought about that until you asked this question, but um, it's always been something that I've been passionate about is how our built environment affects the way we think. Um, and I think it's so important. Um, and, and now, you know, with COVID, it's interesting to see the modifications that we're making to, to our office buildings and other spaces. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that it's always been an interest and I've never, I guess I've gone down the, you know, the more traditional path and haven't really found my way back to it. So are you good at home decor as well? I'm not. <laughs> I, I enjoy other people's. I can appreciate um, good good architecture. I, I, I'm not a good, you know, decorator or architect. The same thing with food. I appreciate good food. I cannot cook food for the life of me. So, <laughs> so in college, you co-founded Mochi Magazine, which is an online publication highlighting stories for Asian American women, um, like the things we've seen in Teen Vogue and Seventeen magazines, both of which I used to buy as a teenager. Um, and Mochi Magazine is still being published and updated today. So you're actually one of the really early ones pushing for media representation. Um, can you talk about the reason behind starting Mochi Magazine and why the name Mochi? I'm curious. Sure. So it started... In high school, it was actually um, senior prom, and one of my good friends and I, we were looking for hairstyle inspiration. We started flipping around in, and I think the same magazines that you talked about, Seventeen and Teen Vogue, and and we, I think one of us commented to the other that we didn't see any Asian hairstyles that we could um, that we could um, use as inspiration, and that that was just a, a thread, you know, kind of a, an offhand comment that we made to each other. We ended up going to prom; it was really fun, and throughout college, uh, we had had the same thought of like, we're continuing to not see Asian representation in these magazines, not just 
on the editorial side, but even in the advertisements. So, so both sides of the magazine, you weren't seeing that. And so, you know, fast forward to the end of college and I had some time because I had secured that job and I was kind of, you know, done with my class requirements and, and got together with, um, this friend and another friend, and, and we decided to start Mochi um, as uh, initially it was it was actually going to be a print publication, but um, that was right around 2008, and, and so the economy wasn't doing well. So we said, okay, let's let's do it online, um, and so we we launched it then. Um, it's been you know it's been really incredible to see the, the growth and trajectory of that. Um, Mochi was it was a fun name. We, we, I think we came up with it. We were looking at lots and lots of names, um, you know, Jade and there had already been hyphen and Audrey. And so, um, we, we were looking at names and there was, it, there was alliteration, which we thought was fun. We, we all enjoyed eating mochi. And we also thought it was um, something that was, you know, from, from the East, but there was recognition in the West and that was around, you know, Pinkberry. And, and so we, it ended up being kind of a fun name. I think we have a more articulate uh, explanation on, on the website of, of how it came to be. Yeah. I actually thought it meant it was like a similar sounding to Machi, which is friends in Taiwanese or like a interesting group of people. Yeah. So that's where my mind went to. That's great. I did not, I did not know that my Taiwanese <laughs> is even worse than my Chinese. So that's great. I'm not, I'm not fluent either, but I just learned a few words. Um, so the magazine was something you launched uh, as a young woman. Um, and then you went on to have a career in consulting. Um, and you mentioned in our pre-interview that you actually cold emailed uh, Zappos CEO Tony Shea and just ended up with a job in Vegas and you stayed longer than you had expected. And that's a really interesting career trajectory because I think we think like, oh, it's 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 too late to cold email people. Like we're in 2020, people don't do that anymore. Um, so along this path, were there any mentors that you made? Like what was the most useful advice you received? And do you suggest people cold email leaders that they uh, respect and want to work with? Does that still work? So I, on the cold email front, I think it was, I got lucky in some ways. So Tony is someone who reads and responds to every email he gets, which is absolutely incredible. And, and I ended up, one of the things I did while working for him was helping him uh, deal with his inbox. And so I, I also then received a lot of emails that were sent to him, very, very similar. Uh, I think if you keep it short and uh, there's a purpose to it, so I think if it's thoughtful, if it's short, if it's informative, um, you know, you, you never know. And 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 for me, I, I was lucky that was my first email that I sent really, and I got a response, and it worked out quite well. Um, I've again, I've now since received many such emails and also sent uh, some such emails. Uh, and, and you'd be surprised. I, I think a lot of executives do want to help out and, and pay it forward. And in some cases I've had, uh, you know, once I had a, a negative customer service experience with a company and I sent the executive an email, um, the chief executive, and they responded and they said, and I was very thoughtful in what I wrote and they were thoughtful in their response. And it was, it was pretty incredible. And I think that's one of the reasons that attracted me to Zappos and Tony was this notion of, um, authentic customer service. And, and I think Tony himself has become a mentor and he talks a lot about this authenticity and, and his perspective is, you know, lots of people are trying to be many things to many people in the world. And, and, you know, I'm guilty of this where I might show a different side of me in, in many different situations. And his perspective has always been, if you are your authentic self and you put that out into the world, um, other people who feel that way will come and find you. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. And um, with Zappos, as well as uh, the initiative in downtown Las Vegas, he really talked 
talked about this notion of um, being able to engineer serendipity and bringing all these people from um, different industries together and having them share ideas. Um, he talked about, again, this customer service and what that meant. And, you know, it's not just about Zappos delivering shoes. It's really about delivering happiness. That's the title of his book. And I resonated with that you know, something that was a philosophy that I had thought about this engineering serendipity and no one had ever articulated it. And that prompted me to reach out to him. And so I think, again, when I think about um, what I try and and put out into the world, uh, it ends up being something that's authentic to my core values. So he's one of the mentors that you've had. Exactly. Yeah. I think he's, he's, he's probably the, the person who thinks the most differently from me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important um, when looking at mentors is having people who can can really question you um, and question your thought process. So looping back, I think your passion for mochi and its values perhaps led you to Gold House. Um, For those who don't know, can you describe what Gold House is and what's sort of the mandate or the North Star for the nonprofit? Gold House was founded a few years ago, and it's a collective of pioneering Asian founders, creatives, executives, and other leaders. And our goal is to accelerate our societal impact while enhancing our community's cultural legacy. Uh, so our North Star, we're still actually defining this. We, it's funny you, you mentioned this because um, I was just having an email thread with one of the other founders about how can we crystallize our North Star. Um, so I think it's it's a really important question. But I think our working our working thought is it is really to forge stronger bonds among our people and also enable them to lead more authentic and successful lives. So it's really you know building that community and then. From that strength, enabling them to, um, you know, bring that to other other communities. And in our pre-interview, you mentioned that a lot of people in the community saw Gold House and they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. We love it. But you know what? It's been done before and it hasn't been wildly successful. You know, they ask you, what's going to be different? And I think we both kind of laughed at how we used a lot of tech and uh, startup terms to talk about Gold House, um, you know, North Star. So it's that you have a North Star that you're chasing and you're constantly iterating on what's working and what's not. Do you think this is what differentiates you guys and maybe other groups that came together in a more ad hoc way? It's hard to know. I think one of the the things that people said was, well, there's already a group for, um, you know, name your ethnicity or name your industry or name your, um, you know, generation. And so what we've tried to do is, is bring all that together. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, why one of the reasons why we're so successful is that uh, we are institutionalizing this support for each other. And so um, we have this, you know, joke or informal rule. And I, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but it's something I think about. We say kind of no assholes, right? I don't know if I can swear on this, but it's it's really meant to be, you know, we're looking for people who recognize, um, you know, that they are in this, you know, they've, they've accomplish something really incredible, or they have this platform, and they want to support other people within the community. And I think not only that, but they want to then take that and be able to to help other communities. And so um, at every event that we do, we actually host something called a give and a get. And so we use it as an icebreaker. But essentially, what it is, is we go around. And not only do we have um, the get, which is something that you're looking for from other people. So that could be, you know, hey, I'm looking to raise a fund, I'm looking for marketing support, I'm looking for, you know, whatever it is. But then we have the give, which is something I'm able to offer to this group. And oftentimes the give is is unexpected. It might not be, you know, if that person's a a great business executive, their give might be business advice. That's, you know, that makes sense. It's not 
surprising, but oftentimes they might offer to give something completely different. Um, and we actually then track those gives and gets, and, and we are looking at percentage of, of matching against those. And so um, that's something that I haven't really seen in a lot of organizations. You might, you know, you might show up to a fundraiser or a mixer and networking event, and it's great. You meet a few people, then you, know, you go home and you follow up. But we actually send out every single person's give and get after. We're also starting a process of tracking that centrally so people can, you know, even if they weren't at that event, they can offer it. Um, and we did that at, we had a gala. We had you know, several hundred person gala last, last year um, and we did that. And it's been really cool to see. You know what that's reminding me of? Feedback and idea management <laughs> tools. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's literally like tracking your metrics for the quarter or something. Um, so one of Gold House's first initiatives, which was seen by a lot of people, was probably Gold Open for Crazy Rich Asians. Um, and you mentioned that it came from a Gold House salon session where members get together for dinner and discuss sort of like a problem or a pain point that you're trying to solve. And so how to make a film a box office success was that pain point. And then Gold Open was sort of the hypothetical solution to be tested, which worked out really well. Um, can you talk about Gold Open and sort of the other initiatives that you guys have as well? So Gold Open, exactly as you said, is an initiative to ensure the opening weekend box office success of key films with authentic Asian representation. I think at the end of the day, you need good stories, you need these great stories, but you also need people who are willing to pay to go see those stories on screen. And, and that creates this positive flywheel where, you know, the more people are going out, the box office numbers are better and more of these stories are greenlit. So that's something where we're, we're really trying to build that infrastructure. So we worked, um, we worked with theaters on actually doing buyouts, you know, the first gold opens where we took some of our members and we said, you're going to go buy out a theater and we're going to watch this film. It's going to be great. We did that for searching. Um, we did that for Grace Rich Asians. We did that for Gook. Uh, and then and then that actually inspired other people to start doing buyouts. And then eventually it was, you know, people bringing their friends on a much smaller scale. Um, and I think that was um, pretty incredible to see. And then another initiative that came from one of the salons was something called Gold Rush. And it started as a thought of how can we support Asian founders? And so we thought, well, what if we did something kind of like um, Prime Day or Black Friday, where people were encouraged to go out and again, spend their money to buy these products and they were offered certain discounts. And so it started as, as essentially a flash sale. And we realized that we had the, fir the first cohort, they ended up Certain, you know, they start talking to each other and they wanted to share ideas and advice. And so um, we've now grown it into more of a founder accelerator. And that really provides not just acceleration, but amplification and community to, you know, 10 to 30, given the cohort size of the most promising Asian founded businesses. I love all these ideas because it seems like you have this problem, you have a solution, and then you have a follow-up on it. Exactly. I mean, you've, you've, you've nailed it. I think we are very, very solution-based. And then we we put that out. And then, you know, back to the, the tech terms, we, we iterate on that solution <laughs> and make it better. And, and, you know, Gold Rush is actually more of not just, you know, that time, but they, they've, you know, every, every single cycle they iterate. And it's been really incredible to see what the team does. And I think I know for work, I, when I search for podcast guests or anyone, I try to find logo power. And I think with a lot of Gold Rush and even Gold open, you have a lot of people that have the logo power to help you spread the word. That's interesting. When you say logo power, is that, what do you mean? It's a name that I would recognize. Um, so I think I, I first discovered Gold House with Tina Craig when she was selling You Beauty. And I was like, I followed Tina for years and years. And she's like, oh, we're doing this gold rush thing. And I'm like, oh, what is this? I'll swipe up and see. And that kind of right. led me down the rabbit hole. And then you had like other, you know, people on it that I was like, oh, I recognize this name and that name. So I feel like just the the 
the grouping of these people really makes a really powerful impact. Exactly. And I, I think to that point, we always talk about cross industry because you, know, you can have people within a specific industry get together and there are those you know avenues for that. But very rarely, like one of our, our best salons, we had you know fashion folks and then we also had finance people or business people. We've had in, in, you know, in Silicon Valley, we've had tech people and creatives. And so there's this cross pollination of ideas and people are naturally looking at things differently, but they're all, you know, they're all top in their field and, and to your point. Um, and then I think it goes back to wanting to support each other. So, you know, they're not just as part of Gold House or Gold Rush, but they're also wanting to amplify what everyone else is doing. Um, in our pre-interview, you spoke about how you spent eighth grade in Taiwan, actually, um, and that you went to Taipei American School. Um, and I have a few friends who went there that I met in Taiwan, and they told me, even though you know their school was like the American system and they bounced back between the States and Taiwan, they felt very much like they were stuck between groups and cultures. What was that like for you? Did you ever feel that you were too much of something, too little of something when it comes to your identity? I think before I spent the year in Taiwan, um, I didn't really think about my identity that much. Um, and then I was there and it almost like the pendulum swung the other way where I it was completely immersed in it. And, and, you know, most of the people I was around looked like me and we were the majority. And so and then when I came back, I, I tried to find something in the middle, but I have felt, you know, I think the downside to being part of many different communities is that you're never exactly the center of one necessarily. I felt that um, in college quite a bit where, you know, I had my different identities. I, you know, I had, I was part of the school newspaper. So I had that group. I had part of the Taiwanese club as that group. And, and a lot of these just didn't overlap. I, I couldn't find the overlap. And so, you know, I felt sometimes that I was, you know, bouncing around from group to group and, and trying to piece it all together. Do you ever feel like people look at you to be the authority of like, is that Taiwanese? Is that, is that what it is? Like, can I say it? Can I eat it? Like I, you know, just working in different newsrooms, I've been that person. They're like, is this the the best Korean name? And I'm like, I'm not Korean. I don't know. It's like, (laughs) I can't be the Asian authority on all these things. Or like, they're like, is this picture right? Like, is this holiday right? And I'm like, I don't know if I like being the authoritative person on that. Like, I feel like sometimes it's a burden, but it's also sometimes really nice to share with them. Like, this is what we eat during Chinese New Year because X, Y, Z reasons. This is the story. And they're very receptive to learning about that. It's funny. My, my husband does this sometimes. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's not Taiwanese. He's um, Jewish. And um, it's, it's interesting. Well, but I mean, on the flip side, like I, you know, I ask him and so I didn't realize, you know, we have, I've actually thought about doing a children's book because you have New Year's. So you have like traditional New Year's, December 31st and January 1st. Then you have Jewish New Year. You also have Lunar New Year. You have all these different New Year's. And I think there's there's actually a children's book that exists. talks about like every month the different culture celebrates New Year's. Um, so complete tangent, but I, I think... It's, it's kind of natural and, and he's he's doing it from a place of learning and growth and he wants to know. And, and you know, his family will do the same thing. You know, we order Chinese food and they're, they're asking questions. And um, it, it's, it's interesting, right? Happy. I think that goes to um, some of the conversations that are going on today. And, and oftentimes what I've heard is, you know, oh, I, I didn't know about another race until I met someone and had a conversation with someone. And so, you know, if you can be that one person um, to change someone's mind, like that's, that's powerful. Yeah, I had this one classmate in university and she's from the very East Coast of uh, Canada. And when she she's like, can I tell you something? I'm like, yeah, of course. She's like, I had sushi yesterday for the first time. I'm like, amazing. Great. Wonderful. (laughs) And then she's like, you're also my first Asian friend. And then I was like, 
I'm honored. Like, but she said it in such shame. And I just didn't want her. I was like, that's great. Like, I would love to like, you know, invite you over for dinner or something. Like, let's, you know, these people are very receptive to learning. Um, yes. They don't mean any harm when they ask these questions. So, yes. So Gold House is a registered nonprofit and everyone who works on it does it as in a volunteer capacity. And you mentioned that a lot of team members whose day jobs are in tech. So they're building decks, running reports, cutting the data um, that you're gathering and so on. Have you discussed why people are so generous with their time? Like, why do they do this? And like, what's been the feedback like between the groups? We actually had an offsite a few weeks ago, a virtual offsite, and we're talking about how to, um, you know, how, how Gold House is thinking through the rest of 2020, 2021, as well as recruiting. And so um, this came up indirectly. I think it's a few different reasons, um, at least from talking to, to folks on my team. One is is really the reach and the scale of what we're doing. So, you know, the fact that our initiatives are then able to move the needle in some mainstream media, and you're seeing that in, in films um, most prominently. I think, you know, to recent conversations, we're, we're having these conversations around race and social justice within the AAPI community. And that's something where, so we had um, a, a talk and it was called, you know, Black and Gold. We had this um, several weeks uh, before the protests. And that was something where we were always looking again to bridge those communities. Um, and then I think at the end of the day, we have, you know, we'll have intimate gatherings. So to what we talked about earlier, we'll, we'll have gatherings of maybe 10, 20, 30 people. Um, but we always come up with solutions and those solutions are meant to be incredibly scalable. Uh, and so I think that's inspiring to people to say we can we can build those um, meaningful one-on-one -on -one connections. Um, but what we have with Gold Open, for example, is you know in the thousands, we're able to scale that um, to everyone who wasn't able to be there. So I think um, that's really impactful to see for a lot of volunteers. Um, like the feeling that the effort that they're putting in and sewing into is actually re they're receiving and seeing the benefits of it. Exactly. In our pre-interview, you also uh, mentioned the importance of representation on screen and in stories. And, and you mentioned you loved Maggie Q. And anytime she was on screen, you're like, that's awesome. I really love yes. her. <laughs> and we also talked about how progress isn't necessarily always linear when it comes to diversity in media. For example, um, we all loved when Parasite won an Oscar and then COVID kind of just swept it and hit it right after. And a lot of discrimination against Asian Americans surfaced. Um, I'm, you sort of answered it, but just to get deeper into it, does this change anything about Gold House's missions going forward? I'd say it reinforces that there's a long way to go. Um, and the work of bridging communities is really needed more than ever. So we recently helped launch an initiative called All of Us. It was formerly called All Americans. Uh, and this was meant to leverage our unique ventures to support other marginalized communities. Um, and we did this in partnership with groups like Andrew Yang's Community Forward, several fashion houses, uh, as well as people like Senator Kamala Harris, Dave Chappelle, uh, Megan Rapinoe, Ariana Huffington, Mark Cuban, Michael Strahan. So again, Again, it wasn't just let's let's put out this initiative for Asian Americans, but let's make sure we're, we're bridging these communities. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Maggie? I think the conversation about Taiwanese food just makes me want Taiwanese food. What are your top three Taiwanese dishes that you would recommend to friends like to eat? 
Oh my gosh, I've been trying to cook lo fun um, quite poorly. It's, it's if anyone has recommendations for me of how to cook it, I got an Instant Pot. So um, I've been trying to cook that. I make three cups chicken in Instant Pot oh my and it's gosh. always a hit. Okay, you'll have to send me that recipe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm missing really good Taiwanese breakfast. So like a Saobing Yo Tiao. And, and I know like in New York, there's some great spots. So I'm excited to get back there. Are you a fan of like drinks the bubble teas the in, insane bubble teas that they have now these days yes the crazy yeah and they have like bubble tea with like cheese in it and i don't even know <laughs> yep i but in toronto they're also like eight dollars now like oh my gosh i don't know how like we went from like 2.99 as a kids and then now they're like seven eight dollars i'm like anytime i tell my mom i was like did you know this drink is eight dollars and she's just like you don't have to drink it and i was like <laughs> saying i'm saying these are and then like there was one time i was like yeah you know anytime i go with friends it's like 35 plus dollars and she's like you can just stay home and eat i'm like mom oh that is too funny i'm like you're not getting what i'm saying we should our next our next conversation we should do at at the night market and it'll be like 20 cents okay so maggie where can our listeners find you do you write on medium twitter do you like connecting on linkedin LinkedIn is is the easiest, and and I actually respond to every single LinkedIn message I get. Uh, I got that from Tony of just you know at least acknowledging the time that the person took to write to me. So that's a great um, avenue. And then I do write a bit on Medium. Maggie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation. I think what you guys are doing is so inspirational, and it's really making a great difference in uh, in our community and just bridging a lot of cultures. I think. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Agnata podcast. If you liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have. Feel free to email me at agnatapod at gmail.com. E-G-G-N-A-N-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Catch you in the next episode.